Welcome back to The Purpose of Wealth, The Secrets to Protecting and Growing Intergenerational Wealth, brought to you by Mutual Trust. I'm Narelle Hooper, your host. So far in this series, we've come to understand more about the purpose of wealth and the value of a modern family office. In this episode, we find out what's behind big mindset shifts in the evolution of wealth advice and why it matters. A bit like the evolution of the interweb, wealth advice is changing fast. From a time when it was largely transactional, all about the money and compliance, to something more holistic. Wealth managers are saying, wait a minute, there's so many wonderful things that families do. Let's look at the family's strengths. Let's look at not how wealth is gonna hurt your family, but let's talk about the possibilities of how you wanna use your wealth. We're now at what they call Wealth 3.0. And for families, founders, and the advisors who guide us, we need to know what's changing. He said, when I was in my 40s, my father threw me the metaphoric keys to the castle. He said, this is all yours, son. Good luck. He said, I felt entirely underprepared. He said, so I caught those keys and I've been really trying to catch up ever since and felt massively unprepared. He said, I'm not going to let that happen to my daughters. To explain more, with us from San Francisco is Dr. Dennis T. Jaffe, a leading authority on family enterprise. Dennis has been helping wealthy families globally for more than 40 years. He co-wrote Wealth 3.0, The Future of Family Wealth Advising. He knows well the incredible challenge of succeeding as a family business over generations. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Narelle. It's great to be here. And with us from Adelaide is Brad Simmons, a partner in the family office with Mutual Trust who heads up its South Australian office. Brad's been with Mutual Trust for more than 11 years. He helps integrate the affairs of families across a range of disciplines. A lawyer by background, he's been a CEO of a family office, an investment banker, and has expertise in finance, corporate law, family governance, and succession. Welcome, Brad. Thanks, Sorrel. Good to be with you. Dennis, as you've outlined in Wealth 3.0 with Dr. James Grubman and Kristen Keffler, there are three big steps in the evolution in how family offices have evolved. Can you take us through the three phases and how are they different? It's been an enormous set of changes and, and we use the 1, 2, 3.0. They're not really discrete changes where one thing stops and one thing starts, but just kind of additions. Before the year 2000, family offices were not very common. We look back in the 1980s, wealth management was about wealth. If the wealth manager met with somebody, they met with one family principal, and they talked about money. It wasn't about the family. Before 1985, there was no academic research and no teaching about family business. Family businesses existed, but nobody thought they were worth studying. In the 1980s, a couple of changes took place, and and these are really things that happened all over the world. Inheritors were starting to say, we're concerned about our wealth. We want to be included. We want to have a voice. We have different values. A group of professionals in in a number of different disciplines said, let's begin to look at the issues of family business. Jay Hughes started to talk about the idea that there is non-financial capital, non-financial values in the family, and that people were asking not just to deal with their financial wealth, but also to expand and develop their non-financial capital, the value of their values, the impact that they had in the community, the way in which they raised people. And so the conversation for wealth management all of a sudden expanded, and wealth managers were not really prepared 
for this, and it isn't really what they signed up for. And so this is the beginning of the interdisciplinary field of wealth, which is not just about managing money, but about managing family conversations and family concerns, family differences, family values. But what happened as the field developed, it developed in a kind of a haphazard way. Advisors started to basically play upon the anxieties of family and say, if you don't do these things, you will lose your money. Wealth can spoil your children. Families can lose their wealth. Even today, there are all kinds of ways in which people are suspicious. They look at it negatively. We didn't invent wealth 3.0. It's not a thing. It's really a theme that we see as emerging where wealth managers are saying, wait a minute, there are so many wonderful things that families do. Let's look at the family's strengths. Let's look at not how wealth is going to hurt your family, but let's talk about the possibilities of how you want to use your wealth. The other things about Wealth 3.0 is it's very collaborative and that wealth managers need to be talking to psychologists. They need to be working with lawyers. They need to be working with educators to educate the family, a number of different fields working together as a team. So that, that's what we see as Wealth 3.0. We see it, that the wealth of the world is largely controlled by families. And the families are not just concerned about making more wealth, they're concerned about what's it going to be used for. And family members are saying, what can we do to be productive and to be helpful in the world? All these things are things that the wealth advisors are being called upon to help with. Brad, you've been with Mutual Trust for 11 years and involved in the sector for a lot longer than that. You must have seen some changes over that time also. How have things changed for advisors? The industry as a whole, in fact, is a series of small industries across investment management, tax, consulting, philanthropy, trustee companies, estate planning. There's a range of different facets that, and different service requirements that families have. So the trend I think that I've seen most in recent times is bringing all that together. And so we've really evolved that over the last decade, I think, to enable that same service package for families. Picking up on something else Dennis said in terms of historically the propensity of advisors to try and play on the anxieties of families, I think that's very real. And I'm reminded, I guess, of a situation where a family we were working with, new, new to the firm family, came to us and they'd taken their work out to tender their tax work, their investment work, their, all the sort of financial services, they needed a solution. And they went to a range of different firms, stockbroking firms, accounting firms, and they came to us as well. And, and so we put forward a proposal and we were ultimately successful. And I said to the patriarch afterwards, I said, why? Why us? Why did you choose us? At this stage, he was in his 60s. He said, when I was in my 40s, my father threw me the metaphoric keys to the castle. He said, this is all yours, son. Good luck. He said, I felt entirely underprepared. I didn't know much about investment markets. I didn't know a lot about management and leadership. I certainly didn't know much around family governance and estate planning. He said, so I caught those keys and I've been really trying to catch up ever since and felt massively unprepared. He said, I'm not going to let that happen to my daughters. And he said, that's your job to make sure that doesn't happen to my kids. And so immediately he sort of bestowed that responsibility on us. And the strong sense of worry and anxiety was clearly there. No one needed to play on that to really try and make him feel any more pain than he was. He already knew that the next decade, the next 10, 20, 30 years was going to be a really important period to prepare his children and their children for the responsibilities of wealth ownership. To Dennis's point, this maturity of the industry over that time 
and a coming of age to go, you know what, we don't need to go out there scaremongering. There are families who understand their needs very well, much better than we ever will. And it's our job to sort of rise to the occasion and lead them and inspire them and help them to find the purpose of their wealth and help them work together, invest together. And so I think that's been the coming of age of the industry, Wealth 3.0. That sparks a couple of questions in my mind. Dennis, in Wealth 3.0, you said, we now stand at the threshold to the next major transformation, strengthening the focus on family while shedding the fears and flaws that invaded beliefs about the rich. What will be needed to establish a positive vision of family wealth in the future? Before Wealth 3.0, Preparing the next generation was educating the next generation, but also preparing them for an environment where the wealth is managed for them and they have very little control over it. The newer approaches are getting together and saying, for example, let's get the fourth generation together and begin to talk about what they want to see, what kind of a vision they have, and then begin to work with that generation to say, how should they be preparing themselves? What is it that they want to see and how can they make that happen? So there's a sense through philanthropy, through innovation, entrepreneurship, new ideas, the family can be the the entrepreneurs in each generation to create change and that instead of preparing them to be taken care of by a family office that does everything for them, they're being prepared to be active in dealing with all the uncertainty and creating a new vision. It's a much more exciting thing, but the family members are called upon, said, if you want to be part of this, you have to really train yourself. You have to really develop your skills. You have to do internships and work in other groups and take other kinds of work in order to prepare yourself. And you have to be a very, very engaged person in your family, not just a bystander. I see financial advisors getting more involved in in preparing the next generation as leaders. Brad, that's picked up a good point about the skills. So when the family patriarch threw you the keys, how well prepared did you feel as an advisor and what skills do you see that advisors will need to deal with this shift? It's a good question. I think I'd had the benefit of already working in-house with a a large family in a single family office before I joined Mutual Trust. That part came reasonably intuitively to me to understand the need to pull together multidisciplinary teams to engage with the family. I think the real art, if the financial services is a science, what's the art? The art is really creating the space. It's creating time and the place, families to come together, to talk and to make decisions together. We all do most of our best thinking out loud. And so enabling everyone to have a voice, uh, enabling a democratic environment and creating a, a meeting space where everyone is actually coming to the table as an equal. That facilitation and chairing of meetings is, I think, a core skill that doesn't necessarily come naturally to all advisors. I think we have a tendency to default to our muscle memory. If I'm a chartered accountant, I default to my tax muscle memory. If I'm an investment advisor, I love portfolio management and that, that's where the conversation goes. A big part, I think, of creating the space I'm talking about and facilitating meetings is about holding the room and leading families in a way that they really own the answers. They're really co-designing their rule books together. What really excites me about this space is that in success, these forums, these spaces and places that we're setting up will never actually end. If a family is successful in sustaining its wealth very long term, we're talking 30, 60, 90, 100 years, 
then the rules that we're putting in place, the forums that we're putting in place, yes, they'll evolve, yes, they'll adapt and change as the family does, but we're starting a process that in success should never end. I'd like that phrase, the muscle memory. Yeah. And if you think about the financial services sector, how the sheer traditional approach to wealth, which is about the money, how do we change that muscle memory? Dennis, uh, just bouncing off your thoughts on this. There's the money, there's people developing skills, but the third part of it, and this is something I think that's coming up more and more in family offices, is that if people develop skills and manage money and go off on their own, they're not creating a family entity. And, and there has to be some way in which people say, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm creating businesses. Why would I create a business in my family? Why don't I just do it for myself? And the answer that strong and wonderful families are is that they have created something out of their legacy where the family members really want to voluntarily be part of the family and share success with the other members of the family rather than have everybody go off. So I think family offices are becoming almost like community centers to bring the family together, to bring the family's culture, to celebrate the family's history, to say we can do some wonderful things if we work together rather than having us each go off in our own way. So I'm thinking that, that another new area that the family offices are going is how do we develop the culture of the family? How do we develop the commitment of the, these new generation members that are cousins that are living all over different places and things like that? How do we have them feel part of this shared entity called the family? Brad, what's your experience with those kind of questions? Dennis has hit on a really important point there, which is around the challenges, the time and, and place challenges of bringing people together. A lot of the families we work with not only are scattered around different corners of the country and different corners of the globe, they're also really busy often. And you've got a range of people, including those that might be working in the business or in the family office. The short answer is you've got to do the work. We've got to find the time. We've got to enable and be flexible enough to make sure that it works for everyone. I think certainly the advent of technology is helping in that regard, but there's no substitute for having everyone in the same room at the same time to connect and to work through some of the challenges that Dennis is talking about. Even for the Zoom generation? Yeah, exactly. It brings with it its own challenges, but connecting and meeting and making decisions together is better than not. The other dimension here, I think, is when to start with families. So we're talking about engaging across generations. Often we, in these meetings, we might have three generations in the same room, grandparents, parents, and children. And one of the biggest fears that we hear from families, parents in particular, is that by bringing their children into these forums, they don't want to disrupt their development. They don't want to throw them off the game when it comes to their schoolwork or their university work. They don't want to demotivate and uninspire their career trajectory. One of the questions we most often get is, when should we start? What's the right age? And the short answer to that is there is no right age. And the longer answer is that you've already started. The minute your kids are born, you're parenting, you, you are creating conversations and, and relationships around money, around values. There was a family we were working with some time ago, and they, they asked me that exact question, when should we start? The kids range in age from 16 to 25. And they said, well, 16 feels too soon and 25 feels too late. They added, that I don't want to bring in one child without bringing in the others. So how do I do this in a way that's fair and equitable and not going to be disruptive to their development? Simply, we said, let's get started. And I said, but I don't want to show everyone the balance sheet. So I said, don't show the balance sheet. Let's talk about the principles. Let's visit the sites. Let's talk about the bricks and the mortar. Let's talk about the legacy of what's gone before. Let's talk about how we got to this place. Design a process that's going to actually 
be informative and educative and inspire the next generation. Dennis, you say there are three defining questions adapted from cultural anthropology that can help illuminate what needs to be done for that transition for families. Can you go through those? I think I can do it by responding to Brad's example. He presented three eras in the family. And when people are growing up, there's three different stages and different tasks that you want to do to develop the next generation. And the first is before they go to college, because when they go to college, the kids are gone. And in a way, those years, they're really preoccupied. And even if they come home and visit, it's just to pass through and really move on. So I begin to think that when they're below 18, they need to learn to appreciate the family. They need to learn a little bit about the business. What does the family do that makes it special? There's an educational process about the business that you want to teach. If your family has a foundation, you want them to learn about philanthropy. If the family does things in the community that are special, you want them to learn. So there's a learning you know, about who we are that comes before university. Then when they're at university, that's when they're developing skills, but they're really developing their skills as independent people. They're working outside, they're learning things, they're traveling, they're meeting other people, they're being exposed to other families. They're really in an innovation and development phase. That's the expanded phase, and that's the independence phase. But then when they start their own families, when they've begun to develop their careers outside, there's kind of a third phase that's interdependence. And that's when you say, well, you have an outside life, you have your own personal family, nuclear family, household, but you're also part of this larger entity, and maybe there's a role for you. Maybe you can take a role in governance. Maybe you can take a role just coming to family meetings regularly. Maybe you want to be part of helping to educate the next generation. You want to be involved in philanthropy. Maybe you want to work in the family office or something, but you begin to say, while you have your outside life, you also have a way that you can serve the family. And there isn't one role. There isn't one leader, and then everybody else is a bystander. There's many leaders in the family, and there are many roles. And if you begin to specify the possible roles, you see that there's really probably a responsible role in the family for everybody. So the third phase is the family coming together for governance, but it happens after family members have gotten some independence and they've gotten some rudimentary learning when they're young, but this kind of completes the developmental cycle when they come back to serve the family in some way. Dennis, that sounds to me as if what you're aiming for there is a separation between role and status in the family to diffuse some of those challenging interpersonal dynamics. Is that a fair call? Yeah, well, there's a way in which the families pose a lot of things in either-or sense. Like, should I tell them about the money or not? It's not either-or. Are you employed by the family or you're on your own? Well, there's a lot of governance roles where you can be on a board, you can be part of a foundation, you can serve on a family committee and still have a job outside or raise children or do something else. So the, the either-or thinking, I think, is what families have to get away from and say, let's figure out a way to do both. Brad, from your experience, how do advisors build the skills they need to really be able to support families in that context? What we're talking about here fundamentally is leadership. The skill that is required, I think, to help families on these intergenerational journeys is about leadership. And everyone has their own style of leadership. 
but the common traits I think are involved in good leadership as someone that can really help a group of people corral and set a common vision for the future. I look at some of the people coming through our business and identifying opportunities internally where it's not necessarily client-facing to develop your own leadership skills, whether it's chairing committees at work or being on the sporting club board. Operating in that sort of board environment, I think is a really important way to understand how groups make decisions together. And I think the other dimension is being able to bring people from multi-disciplines together to be able to chair a, a meeting where you might have four or five different experts rotate through the meeting. You might have the investment advisor come in to give an update on what the portfolio is doing and how the family's income is sitting and what's happening in world markets. You might have the tax person come in to do some tax planning or tax compliance. You might have a philanthropy manager come in to either start or sort of roll on with the work that families are doing with their strategic giving. There's probably an estate planning component. There might be a lawyer or a trustee person come in to provide an update and on it goes. And so having the skills to be able to set an agenda and keep a meeting on track and keep the family focused on the key outcomes and the key questions they should be asking at each level, I think is really important. Brad, I hear you're a big devourer of books and strategies. Any methodologies or approaches that resonate with you on this? Oh, there's so much out there, and the challenge is trying to synthesize it all and, and not sort of get too bogged down with theory. <laughs> there's probably one model that captured my imagination. It's sort of one part of one model. So Josh Barron, who wrote a book called The Family Business Handbook, yeah. talks about the five rights of family owners. It's a really crisp way to think about what are my rights and responsibilities as an owner. But there's one particular dimension of that that's really resonated with me, which is around the four rooms of family governance. So if you can visualize in your mind's eye, a bird's eye view of a house, an open plan blueprint of a house, and there's four rooms. And down the right-hand side is a family room, across the top is an owner's room, in the middle is a boardroom, and at the bottom is a, a management room. The idea is that different decisions are made in different rooms. And in each room, I'm wearing a different hat. There's a different set of people, maybe slightly different sets of rules. What's really powerful, I think, about this model when we use it with families is throwing it up on the whiteboard and start plotting, where do you sit? Where are we today? Who's making what decisions? And, and importantly, how do I move between the rooms? So if I'm 18 years old, finishing high school, starting university, and I've got aspirations to move into the family business or the family office, how do I move from that family room into the management room? When do I move from the family room into the owner's room? What are the gateways that stand between those two? Do I have to be bloodline? Do I have to be working in the business to be an owner? How do I get on the board? How do I move from owner to board? How do I move out of ownership? That framework is now something that I'm using a lot to hang off of the different policies that families need to work together, their family employment policy, their board election policies, their bloodline policies for ownership, their exit policies. Each of these components together build this whole kind of patchwork, brickwork of rules that families, in our experience, need to co-design and develop together to set themselves up for long-term success. Dennis, that's given us a framework where families are trying to prepare to ground that future generation, the rising generations. What's important about it is not that people go from room to room, it's that there are certain responsibilities of the people in the rooms and the people are different. So difficult conversations. Here's the thing that happens in businesses is, is a family doesn't talk about something in the family. You know, somebody feels like they've been treated unfairly or somebody feels like the oldest son gets all the preference and nobody ever notices their daughter 
who is equally competent, or something happens, and where are they going to discuss it? And I think the idea of the four rooms is that each of the rooms has its own governance structure. So if you're an owner, there are owner's issues. There is the five rights of owners and the things that need to be discussed. But the family has issues that they need to discuss that are non-business issues. And non-business issues include developing the next generation. It includes discussing what is our wealth for and how do we treat each other fairly. Families create a code of conduct of expected behaviors. They talk about the values. They talk about how they want to treat each other. What happens in, I think, mature and successful families is the family creates a family council. And in the family council, there's a forum where people talk about what are the issues, what is on our minds, what are the concerns. There's a way in which the family says, we're going to deal with difficult issues and keep them out of the business. We're going to talk about them as a family. They have a family conflict resolution process. I think that it's really, really important to separate family governance from business financial governance. What are some blind spots, some things that go wrong that you both see, what families aren't doing right? I think we've covered off with Dr. Chris Graves, the author of a research paper that we co-designed around why the modern family office matters and importantly, the sort of five facets of family wealth, the five things, the five impacts that families are looking to have with their wealth. And there's one in particular that is always front of mind when we're talking with families, and that is family unity and harmony. So if you think about those words, family unity and harmony, so the unity element means that we are one, we've come together, we believe in a common goal. The harmony piece means that we are working together harmoniously, we're being respectful, we're appreciating each other's differences, um, engaging positively. I'm reminded of a family that we worked with some years ago, the patriarch approached us to help pull a lot of these elements together and start sharing family council meetings and developing some policies. And very early on in the piece, he eyeballed me, he said, it's your job to make sure my kids keep rocking up to Christmas lunch together. And I thought, okay, right, you're on. But there's one condition, you've got to do the work. No pressure. <laughs> exactly. The stakes are pretty high. But I said, the one condition is you've got to do the work. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, everyone's got to show up to these meetings. Everyone's got to come prepared, read the papers. Everyone's going to engage positively. This is going to take some time. There is not an off-the-shelf family constitution we're going to pull out and put your name on top of it and say, there it is, done job. This is about co-designing something together. You've got to get down and crawl through the gravel together, as it were. And so that family, many years on, we're, we're doing exactly that. And in fact, there's often situations arise that a policy that we've developed a few years earlier might not cater for it. So you evolve it, you adapt it, but it's actually the process of working together to develop those rules that I think is most powerful. In terms of what bad looks like, there's probably a, a misconception that most families in these situations that are dysfunctional are highly hostile. They are yelling, screaming, it's outwardly aggressive behavior. And certainly there's elements of that. Believe it or not, what is as bad is the other end of the spectrum. This sort of fake harmony where the important conversations, the tough conversations, the awkward topics are being avoided. We're still rocking up to Christmas lunch together, but there is this underlying tone of stuff that is not being dealt with. Putting those awkward issues on the table and working through them, it's painful, right? And often it takes several meetings and you got to circle back and you sort of, someone gets triggered. So we're going to go sideways and we come back to it and go round and round until the issue is at least progressed, if not resolved. The final thing I'd say on this facet of family unity and harmony, remember I said the unity element is about having a common vision and corralling around a common goal. You don't always get there. 
not all families, particularly to Dennis's model before where you're starting to move beyond the third generation, you've got cousins and second cousins working together. Inevitably, they won't have a shared dream at a point in time. Perhaps some families would defy that and say that you know, we're 15 generations in and we're still working together. But it's okay to realize and recognize that family unity is perhaps as much about unpacking and unbundling into component family units, separating assets, going separate ways, resetting as a new generation is not a sign of failure. In fact, it's a brave and often bold step that's required to sustain a family's success. There was a family we worked with some time ago. We brought them together. We did multiple years worth of this work, policy development, family council meetings, bringing in the next generation. It was all really positive stuff, but there was this underlying misalignment of how they wanted to see their balance sheet evolve. One wanted to be super hands-on. The other one wanted to be sort of professionalized management and step back and into sort of a non family management type arrangement. It took a long time for that to come to the fore that they actually weren't unified around their common vision for the future. And so what then was really important was that we, in a very orderly way, unpacked the assets into their component parts. There was all sorts of tax issues. There was squabbles over who was going to get what, but we were able to do it in a way that involved minimal legal input, thankfully. Their their mandate was to keep them off the front page of the paper. That was their very clear objective in briefing us. We need to do this in a way where we still have our relationships at the end of it. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tense. But we certainly do not want the embarrassment of devolving into conflict and blowing up in a way that is humiliating for all of us. So family unity and harmony, it's about having a common vision for the future. And to the extent you can't get that together, then get it apart. That's so important because third or fourth generation, you have 50, 100 people. The chances of them agreeing on anything are slight. So unless if they come up with a vision for two-thirds of the family, it's not a failure to have the other third or the other branch of the family or some individual say, you know, I love you. We have a wonderful thing that we've created together, but my interests are really different. My um, research on 100-year families I studied 100 families, and every single one of those families, these were families beyond the third generation, by the fourth generation, none of them had all of the biological family members in the family. All of them had a point at which people said, I want to leave. They uh, became what Jay Hughes calls families of affinity rather than just families of blood. The, the, The blood wasn't enough. Several of the families in my 100 year study did exactly what you said, Brad. They separated by branches. Unless they have free choice, they can't come together. If two-thirds of the people want to do something, why do they have to take along the other third? There's no reason for it. I completely agree with what Dennis has said there, and I would add there's another dimension here whereby individual dreams can be enabled through a common family cohort or, or balance sheet. So I'm referring specifically here to a mechanism, a policy document that we call family bank. We certainly didn't invent it. I think Jay Hughes has been talking about it for decades. But the concept is that the family, let's assume the family is well endowed financially and it has multiple uses of its capital and it has as part of its purpose creating fulfilled, engaged, thriving next generation family members. The family bank mechanism, we've seen families enable the purchase of a range of different assets for the next generation Let's say I'm a radiographer and I want to go and build my own practice, but I've always sort of been working for someone else and I haven't yet inherited any wealth, so I haven't really got the financial means. I've got a mortgage on my house. 
why can't the family lend to me an amount of money to go and set up my own radiography practice? We've seen families across all industries where there might be an ambition that is aligned with a family balance sheet. It might be completely different. Why can't the family enable those outcomes to enable each of the individual family members to be the best version of themselves? It has to do with what is the wealth for? And if the wealth can't be used by a family member that has a worthy cause and is not foolhardy and is not irresponsible, if the family can help people fulfill who they are, why shouldn't it be doing that? That say, we want, we want to help you and we're open to proposals and we're open to ideas. That's how they, they become innovative and successful in the next generation. Some of those ideas can be incredible, as good as the original family business idea. Dennis, I, I briefly just uh, wanted to wrap up this element of the conversation. You're a licensed clinical psychologist. You're a family therapist. How much does psychology come into helping families start those conversations and be much clearer about whether they can stick with family unity or harmony or whether they need to go their own ways? Basically, families are not set up to change. They're set up to keep things the way they are and to keep the authority of the older generation. The psychology of the family is, it's not just the family, it's everybody. You have a lot of anxiety when you do something new. So you try something new, you take a risk. That's scary. It's scary the first time you ski down a hill. It's scary to start a new business. And so families get into what we call the comfort zone, the bubble of doing the things that they've always done. And it's very, very difficult to say, let's do something different. And I think the therapists and the psychologists that get involved help people manage the anxiety in a positive way, not by avoiding it and not by not talking about it and pretending everything is good, but by dealing with anxiety, by letting yourself become anxious and do something that's risky, and then managing the anxiety in a positive way to come to a better result. I think another problem is that when you get anxious, you make decisions, but you don't make good decisions. So anxious people that are under threat, we call it fight or flight, they do things that are really quick, and it's like, let's do something, but it isn't necessarily the wisest course. And sometimes when you're in a conflict, you have to say, let's sit with the conflict and not do the first thing that comes to mind, but let's say, what is it the best thing that we can do? What are the options? What are the opportunities? Let's slow it down and sit with this for a while and, and do the right things. And I think those are all ways in which, I don't want to say psychologists, but psychological techniques can help family advisors wade into anxiety and upsetting things in the family and come to a productive outcome. Brad, I wanted to build on some of the work that you've been doing. We're seeing a, a massive increase in family wealth and we've got the intergenerational transfer that we're living through right now. So there's lots of new wealth being created and creating demand for family offices. Given those shifts that we've been discussing today, do you think family offices here in Australia are keeping up? And how could they be looking to assist families differently? From an Australian context, what we're seeing is that a huge amount of wealth has been created post-World War II. So what, what are we talking about the last 70 years? So if you think about that from a generational point of view, if a generation is sort of in 34-year blocks, we are in Australia, I think, converging on a lot of transitions from Gen 1 to Gen 2 and, and soon to be Gen 2 to Gen 3. And so what we're talking about there, coming back to Dennis's model, is 
grandparents to parents to children. And so are family offices keeping up? I would suggest probably not. What we tend to see is a rise of single family offices. Successful entrepreneurs who have made a lot of money have probably done it because they're very good at controlling the environments around them. They're very good at managing people and driving to the outcomes that they want. And so the tendency to go and set up your own family office, to go and hire a premises and bring in some staff and set up an ecosystem is often a natural instinct for some successful entrepreneurs and and intergenerational families. The problem with that model is that it has a shelf life. Its shelf life is as long as the patriarch or the matriarch or the relevant family leader is going to be around to continue managing it. It doesn't have necessarily good continuity. You're going to have a key executive who you're going to become really reliant on. And you're going to have a key executive whose job, whose position description, I almost guarantee if you pull out the position description, it says a lot about investment and tax and philanthropy. It says very little about family unity and harmony and learning and engagement and community impact. It doesn't touch on a lot of those other facets. And we speak with a lot of single family office executives. They are a rare breed. And I, I was one once. So I've got an enormous amount of respect for the challenges of, that come with managing a single family office. But your mandate is limited to often the financial balance sheet, the non-financial dimensions that we're talking about often require that external intervention and deeper thought than simply the day-to-day management. And so we're doing a lot of that kind of work at the moment with single family offices who have probably world-class kind of operations and great portfolio construction and really good systems, but they aren't necessarily tackling some of the bigger, hairier, more challenging interpersonal familial issues. So I think there's a fair bit of catching up to do if you believe, which I certainly do, that this wave of intergenerational transitions is not coming, it's upon us, then we are in the midst of, uh, I think, a really interesting time in helping families meet these challenges. Brad, how can families push their advisor to a different conversation so they get to where they need to get to on this? That's a tough question. Um, I mean, the reality is that you shouldn't need to push your advisor. It should be, I guess, coming back to the point earlier, about leadership, that's the key skill set that we're talking about here is having someone outside the family bring the family together and help lead a different kind of conversation than, than the quarterly tax planning or the, the annual kind of reviews. Sometimes it's about coming back to Dennis's model of what do we keep, what do we let go and what do we start. Maybe it's not about letting go of existing relationships. Maybe if you've got a long-standing tax advisor or a really trusted investment advisor, you don't necessarily need to let them go but you maybe need to supplement another skill set into the equation. So maybe it's less about pushing your existing advisors, who, as we said before, are more than likely going to default to their muscle memory of their technical capability. And maybe it's more about supplementing some other non-financial capabilities. We do a lot of that work. We work collaboratively with other accountants, other investment advisors, other trusted family advisors, board members, who don't necessarily have the experience or the capability to be able to lead families on these journeys. What do you believe families of wealth need most? And how important is it that the advisor evolves as the family does? Dennis, I'll start with you. The families need to push forward into new areas and begin to be looking at themselves as not just as financial entities, but as communities. I think advisors have to be expanding. The competitive nature of the field is leading family offices and advisors to move in the direction of 3.0. Otherwise, they're not going to get the business of the younger generations that understand that that's what they need to do as a family. Stretching that muscle memory. Yeah. 
Brad? I think the thing that is most important to families is to have a very clear sense of purpose around their wealth. We've talked about the five-facet model. That provides a framework to start encapsulating ideas and thought bubbles and ultimately a plan and a vision for what the purpose of the family's wealth is. And what we find is generally it's not a binary outcome. It's not one of the five or two of the five. It's a little bit of all of the five, but, but it's your five. It's the, the individual family's five. So having that very clear purpose and then a strategy to live that purpose. Having the frameworks, the governance structures, the policies, those are critical ingredients to intergenerational success. To the second question, it is incredibly important that advisors evolve alongside of their families. I think Charles Darwin said it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent. It's the ones that are most adaptive to change. So if there is one thing that is guaranteed in any family, it is that it is changing. It's a living, breathing organism. People are aging. People are coming into the family, be it through birth or marriage. People are exiting the family through death or divorce. It is a living, breathing organism. And so the family's policies and frameworks need to evolve. And it's really, I think, incumbent upon the advisory team collectively, multifaceted advisory team to help lead families on that journey of change. Dennis Jaffe in California and Brad Simmons in Adelaide, thanks for joining us on The Purpose of Wealth and thank you very much for sharing your insights. Thank you for calling this group together. Thanks, Narelle. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of The Purpose of Wealth podcast. In the next episode, we speak with a living legend of family business in Australia, a family that's had a huge positive social and economic impact on our nation. When Maya Burke Street opened, Mondays became sale days, whereas previously Monday had always been washing day for families at home. Monday became rushing into the city for the Maya sales every Monday. My father was a great lover of sales. He changed the fabric of life in Melbourne for women by making them now come into the city on a Monday and not stay home and do the washing. We speak to Lady Marigold Saudi about her life growing up in the Meyer family, the incredible family legacy started by her parents, Dame Merlin and Sydney Meyer, plus much more. Lady Saudi sharing her journey and life lessons in episode four. Want to find out more about the research why the modern family office matters? Head to mutualtrust.com.au or email us at purposeofwealth@mutualtrust.com.au. I'm Nurel Hooper. I'll catch you next time.